0: You're listening to the luxury item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. Recently, the headlines were filled with the news that the French luxury giant LVMH has been in talks to potentially acquire Tiffany and Company for almost $15 billion. The attempt to snap up Tiffany is the latest in a wave of consolidations in the luxury goods industry that is tilting towards the new generation of wealthy Chinese consumers. Hermes said its stores in mainland China had outstanding results that helped fuel a 19% sales gain in the wider region. The company plans on opening its 26th boutique in China in July and continues to build out its e-commerce site for Chinese customers. Meanwhile, other luxury brands are looking to expand the size of their retail footprint in cities like Beijing and Shanghai. Despite China's economic growth slowing to a three-decade low, shoppers are continuing to spend heavily on luxury. The fact is, China is keeping the luxury industry afloat. Just listen to these numbers. The luxury goods sector is worth over $1 trillion, according to Boston Consulting Group, who expect it to grow at 4 to 5% a year until at least 2025. Wealthy people in China whose numbers recently eclipsed those in the US for the first time and the driving force in the sector are accounting for a third of all luxury spending. And by 2025, that figure is expected to rise to 40%. So on the surface, China looks like such a promising region with so many possibilities for luxury brands who want to thrive in that market but many are reluctant to enter the Chinese market for a variety of reasons. These brands remain paralyzed, thinking that there will never be a perfect time to take advantage of the opportunity in China. My special guest today on The Luxury Item is here to help peel back the barriers of entering the Chinese market and share why, how, and where to get started. Iris Chan is a partner and international client development director at Digital Luxury Group, an international digital agency that focuses on luxury brands with offices in Geneva, Shanghai, and New York. Iris has 10 years of marketing experience in agencies and consultancies in the North American and Asia-Pacific markets, specializing in the luxury category. She has worked closely with brands including Four Seasons Hotels and Resorts, LVMH, Richemont, Estee Lauder, Ralph Lauren, just to name a few. Our marketing experience spans the areas of branding and communication strategy, digital strategy, market research and analysis, media and editorial planning, as well as online and offline activations. Previously based in Shanghai for over five years, Iris is now here in New York. Welcome, Iris.
1: Thank you, Scott, Thanks for having me here.
0: <laughs> that was a long uh, intro there, but you know, there's a lot of things going on right now, and it seems perhaps the most interesting and exciting part of What's going on in the category now is what's going on in China, because it's very different than the rest of the world. I'd like to hear a little bit more about the Digital Luxury Group. So what do, what do they do? I know they're a marketing agency. When Give a little history on that.
1: Sure. Thank you. Um, so DLG, Digital Luxury Group, uh, born out of Switzerland and Geneva, that's where our headquarters is. So we have a team there working on all the Western platforms. And about eight years ago, we opened up Shanghai, and Shanghai now has over 60 folks there who are working with our international luxury brands, uh, working on their digital marketing in uh, China, targeting Chinese consumers, uh, whether they're traveling inbound or outbound, and also just domestic spend as well. So that goes everywhere from digital through to omni-channel, Mm -hmm. working on that uh, cross-consumer experience with in-store experiences as well. As everything that they're doing online and wrapping that together, so we cover services from social media to e-commerce activities to social CRM as well.
0: So, when was it created? Was it did it start out? You know, seeing that there was an opportunity in the luxury category. Is that how it? Sort of launch into the market? Yeah,
1: I'd say we were pretty ahead of it all. Uh, in entering the market, it was very much on the research consulting side of things, getting back to HQ with sort of what is going on in the local market. Um, but quickly, being in the actual local market, we realized actual execution, apart from just research and strategy at the higher levels, was definitely needed. Right. So we built an editorial team, a design team, so everything from strategy from the global end to localizing it through to executing it in the local market. So it started off more on the social media side and then in the past couple of years, especially as luxury brands have embraced uh, e-commerce, a lot having to do with the fact that China is very digitally dominant in that way. So e-commerce is just a necessity and uh, evolving that through from e-commerce through to social CRM.
0: So let's talk about the market. China's appetite for luxury is not waning. And despite what's going on there, continue to invest heavily in luxury goods. Why is that? What is unique about this market? What is unique about the Chinese consumer that's very different than the rest of the world?
1: I think there's not necessarily this uniqueness to the consumer themselves. I think, like any other consumer who goes after luxury goods, is also as interested uh, in those products as they would be anywhere else. I think what's really interesting about the market is just the fact that it is massive and it's very digitally dominant, which just exacerbates exactly what that opportunity is. So the, the opportunity right now is really only just showing itself at the tip of the iceberg. I right. think there's just so much more. We've really only tapped into the top-tier cities and some of the growing top-tier cities um, and there's just actually a lot more land space to go through for that market. So it's definitely interesting in that way because everything in terms of growth is just exponentially faster as it goes
0: in there. Everything is done on their on their mobile device, and they, it has been done on their mobile device f- far ahead of any place else in the world, particularly uh, in the West. And that probably has a lot to do with it, how advanced they are and uh, digitally and through through e-commerce. So what is unique about you know, the the Chinese consumer and how they shop because everything is done in their mobile device.
1: Definitely. So going back a little bit, when it comes to the whole consumer and their environment uh, being digital, it's also, you know, facilitated by a lot of those big players like Alibaba and Tencent. Mm -hmm. So those ecosystems look at search through all the way to social content, through to live streaming and entertainment, through to e-commerce and wrap it all back around in a loyalty program that's really quite seamless. So they own much more of that consumer journey as opposed to having different platforms for each part of the journey. And that means that from a consumer standpoint, you are easily inside Tmall app, and being able to do everything from search and discovery through to looking at influencer, as they know it as key, influence, uh, key opinion leaders, KOLs, to then discover content, products, and then drive straight to a storefront and a products page for purchase, and then through to everything else that encircles that entire consumer journey. Same thing for WeChat, you know, that's all facilitated from content, social sharing through to an actual brand account where they can also have a purchase uh, completed as well through payment systems of WeChat Pay, seamlessly doing the whole thing. So from a consumer standpoint, the uniqueness of it all is just that none of it really requires that you have to ever be offline That said, I think for the luxury category, an offline presence is still very relevant because that experience is really what kind of takes it to the next level for that category, and it's a little bit more necessary. But I would say that, you know, the lack of infrastructure also in the China market, just because of the geographical span that it takes, it's you still have cities that have dusty roads to get to one place or another and three-wheeled tuk-tuk type of vehicles getting you from place to place. That is still in existence, which also means that infrastructurally there's not going to be an Hermes store in some of these smaller places, but these smaller places also have millions of consumers still. So there is still much more opportunity, but as a result of that uh, lack of infrastructure like that that you might have seen in the West here in a large land mass like the U.S., Digital is the way to go. You get to reach all these places, these populations and consumers that don't necessarily have a store just nearby. So that experience is definitely different for them and much more cohesively facilitated by a lot of these players in the market.
0: Which brings me to the topic of, you know, you're finding so many of these uh, high-profile cases of Western brands that are falling short. I uh, really screwing up when it comes to pursuing the, the the Chinese consumer, like, why is that? why, why what is what is wrong? what what are they not doing? Um, I could just read a dozen cases that happened in the past year.
1: There are a few different versions of those cases, and there are definitely some that are much more extreme and harder to forgive and forget. I think that it doesn't mean that, you know, a, a brand or a person like anybody can't be perfect. You know, we're all human, and we we get that. I don't think that, People are necessarily going to write off brands because of some of these missteps, but it is revealing of what is lacking in knowledge in this situation. I don't know how to answer it fully, since it's you know something that you always look back in hindsight and think, okay, I could have done that better. I think that's one key piece is just making sure that you do look back and think about whether or not you could have done something better and try to be better the next time. But I think. My feeling on the whole thing has been that a lot of these brands try to market to these secondary markets and they do it in a way where they haven't really gone in themselves. And I think if you don't quite actually see the operationalizing of some of these global strategies that are then localized per se, you don't really quite see the gaps that actually exist. If you sit in a local market con call, if you will, with Global, who's hearing a brief about what this campaign's for, for example, or the vision, creative direction that's going to be renewed, or whatever it might be, you'll realize in the room by just looking around where the gaps are. When you're getting those briefs and you start to see executionally, creatively, the ideation, everything that goes on with the whole process, and when they're getting that download, You can tell if you're in the room if something's not really quite right. And I don't think that brands have gotten to the extent from the global side to get into those markets to really see what that looks like. And I think that does require at some point brands to actually physically be over there, take some time, especially some of the key stakeholders that are part of these projects and part of these uh, initiatives in the market to be able to actually sit there and say, okay, does this actually work? Because sometimes, you know, distance and not being able to see somebody's face is is a lot, you know, right. things like Skype and, <clears throat> and Zoom and things like that don't necessarily resolve all of those issues. So, uh, you know, being there and actually understanding and Every time I go back to China, it's and I go there relatively frequently. But every time, you know, you're really realizing that there's so much is happening over in that market because it's digital, that things are iterating so quickly and things are changing. Uh, but in terms of understanding the consumer, you need to be there for it to understand what's what going on.
0: Right, and you know, luxury and the fashion industries are so creatively driven. You would think, especially if you're a global brand, you would think that you would have a cultural expert. Or experts, either on staff or in the markets, before you launch a product, before you launch an ad campaign, to take a look at it and say, is this going to, is this culturally relevant? Um, Will this stir up issues that can affect my brand? Um, And it seems, in many cases, not only in the luxury and fashion over the past year, but other brands too, um, have not figured that out to do something like that. So, would that be something that you would recommend? Is having someone before you launch a product or, or a campaign to um, look look over what the message is?
1: I think that's definitely part of right the process. Right from the beginning, right. Yeah, it's definitely part of the process to be able to have an expert who knows the market to be able to have a sense check on the whole matter. It's still required throughout the whole process too because it can also come down to the execution day of launch and go live. But, you know... It's not an easy thing to do to enter a market that is not the same language, same culture. And I think that it's a little bit more than just being able to have an expert just tell you something. I think there's more effort to be done there because I think it's really easy to just tap into that one person. Um, And there are a lot of dynamics that are within any local market, and it's not unique to China. It's just that China's massive, so... And it's also very digital. So when something happens, it's definitely exacerbated at an exponential size. But, you know, having that cultural sense and consideration and respect really is just a requirement for any market. And I think that does require, you know, people having the empathy and the effort and intention to make a message make sense for that market. Mm -hmm. And it it will come through. And it, it doesn't mean that it's always going to be perfect, but... It definitely won't be well off the market if you do it that (laughs) way. Like we've
0: seen it. So what do you say to, you know, here you have a a Western luxury company that's looking to the Chinese market. They see it's a fresh source of revenue there, or it's, you know, they have an operation there and they want to sort of grow the existing operation, but they don't have a clue where to start.
1: Sure. So I would say that the two main messages I typically start off with, and I think, that it has to do with just the general sentiment of trying to get into this market and kind of having a little bit of that decision paralysis with overwhelming amounts of geopolitical things going on, the nuances of the market and the fact that Alibaba and Tencent aren't you know, in the same ecosystem. Do you go for one or the other, et cetera? And a lot of those things can be overwhelming also because of the size of the market. And you definitely want to take that opportunity uh, in consideration with that size But one of the key things is, if you're not in the market yet, is definitely changing the mindset of thinking in a more agile way. Having agility in that market is definitely necessary. Things are constantly changing. Uh, and And that's not just because of geopolitical things, but also the digital environment itself is constantly changing. They don't have a lot of your Western, actually, they don't have any of the Western platforms, but... They do have a plethora of their own native apps that are in China's ecosystem that makes it a very different place. And navigating those waters require you to be able to know when the opportunity is right and when the opportunity is right, to be able to operationalize around it pretty smoothly and nimbly. At the same time, you know, being able to think of new ways to work with brands, uh, to think of ways to enter into the market and, target an audience. It it doesn't have to be this sort of standard pathway. So having those agility sense, uh, the sense of agility in that process is uh, definitely necessary. The other thing I would say also is that I just get the general notion when I speak to some brands these days is that they think if they just open up a storefront that that is enough and one and done and they can if go If you on. build it,
0: they will come. Exactly. Right.
1: Right. And essentially that's not true. <laughs> I don't think that's true in almost any market. Just because you're that store that opens up on the block doesn't mean everybody knows you're on that block and that your store is even there. So this is a super busy block, and lots of storefronts are there. So how do you show up, open up your store, and drive people there? So the definite first step is to actually start building your own brand equity, and that's like you would in any market, is to be able to have your voice and presence on official channels in the market and start off you know, baby steps with social media, being able to start seeding out content, start activating, engaging, start to share what your brand is really about to that market, and then build from there. And if there is already demand for your your brand in the market, you'll know, because you should probably have done some research before entering that market to see if there's an opportunity there for you. But it doesn't mean you just jump straight to making a storefront. There's the normal steps that you would take when you're doing marketing in any market right. to facilitate that storefront with a whole ecosystem.
0: Do you think do you do you, do you recommend that they connect with a partner before they get into the market? Because oftentimes you're hearing with China that's you know the best way to sort of navigate the marketplace is having someone a partner to work with.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you don't have those pieces in place, and I I wouldn't say every brand has, you know, the opportunity of China does require finding the right people, having uh, human capital involved in the whole thing and building out a whole operation there. But if you're really looking to explore and capture a bit of that market that has a consumer going after your brands and your products, it does make sense to work with a partner to see how you can enter and take those steps at, in stages and phases. So it doesn't mean that you need to start building at a whole office. You can turn to a partner who can oper- operationalize some of these elements for you, but with, you know, the, that, that uh, oversight and sort of uh, direction still coming from the brand at HQ. Right. And then being able to start to build From there, you know, knowing what kind of elements that you might need more than others. Uh, Every company on the inside has different strengths, so you know, being able to find the right people to match what you need in terms of resourcing and uh, actually executing into that market. So, definitely, a partner is helpful since that market is huge and it's uh, quite different, and that is helpful in a lot of different ways. And I think that's. Also, why when it comes to even doing an e-commerce platform, there are a lot of those logistical elements that that's why in the Alibaba Tmall environment, they do require that you work with a Tmall partner like a TP. So, you know, the the actual ecosystem is meant for, you know, collaboration with different agencies as part of the Overall uh, existence of your brand in there.
0: Yeah. And you were talking, you were mentioning about different apps that they, they uh, that Western brands need to look at. And, you know, we can't, you know, the elephant in the room is WeChat. Um, you know, the, the, so, the number of social networking platforms has is, is, is grown tremendously uh, in China. And, you know, WeChat seems to be the app of choice or the social network of choice for consumers to engage with brands. Um, and I think Tencent owns them, correct? Okay. So I, was, I, was, I think um, DLG actually just released a, a white paper. Um, I think they've released a couple of white papers on, on WeChat. Tell, tell the audience about WeChat and, and what's unique about it and how consumers engage with WeChat and how do brands navigate WeChat?
1: Sure. WeChat is a super app. I mean, that's the best way to describe it. It's your Venmo, your Fandango, your Wealthfront, your Facebook Messenger, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp. It's everything, everything. is done in there.
0: They could book flights. They could do everything exactly. in WeChat.
1: Exactly. And it also, I mean, from a, there's a whole financial element to it. There's, It's there's everything. Messaging,
0: everything is in there.
1: Exactly. Right. So it is really such a... A super app in the way that a person can use it every single day, and they do use it every single day on a very frequent basis and for a lot of times every day. And the way that that um, app for a brand works is that you can have your own brand channel and you can have an official account that you can be pushing out content. It happens four times a, a month, so it's limited. So it's still, in the sense, when you're using that content, something where you really want to push out something with value, it's not to just kind of push out content right. incessantly. What do you mean
0: by four times a month?
1: So you only can get four pushes a month, right? which means a user will only receive up to four messages a month from you. And that is sort of Ten Cents way to make sure that you're not bombarded with a right. whole lot of things because when you do get these messages from a brand that you might follow – It's coming in just next to your colleagues at work, your mom, your best friend, um, and your clients even on that same app. So a brand is looking at building out, pushing out content on that app in a way that it's providing additional value to the followers that do, which just means that the followers that do uh, follow your account are farther down the consumer journey with yeah. you. So it's a little bit more intimate. It's it's closer to the point of conversion. So that's where, you know, you'll see in our, our report, uh, this is the second edition of the WeChat Luxury report that we have. And this latest release is about acquisition and the previous uh, release was on engagement. And for this app, just the way that it's evolved is not really about trying to get massive amounts of followers. It's really trying to get really qualified followers. Because where they are on that journey means that they're closer to conversion, and you can convert them actually within WeChat through e-commerce, either connecting to your .cn or even using mini programs, which is the sort of right. internal app that you can have on WeChat. Right. And then you know, converting them and then also having loyalty programs that are all wrapped within that same ecosystem, all centralized
0: from a brand. And the payments are right there, too, in WeChat exactly. as well. So if that's at the bottom of the funnel um, in those, those four periods, most of the messaging is, is driving them to purchase mm-hmm. within the app, how do they find out or get engaged with the brands on the top of the funnel? If everything is that they've, the ecosystem is, is there, where do they get that information? Is it from the KOLs we were talking about or from other places?
1: Right, so feeding at the top of the funnel, you have a complementary platform like Weibo, which is much larger, much wider in the sense of reach. So you can, you know, it's kind of like your Twitter, if you will. It's shorter format content, lots of visuals, and you can definitely work with KOLs and medias on that as well as having your own brand account on it. So it's it's something I would say that a user would probably more passively follow a number of accounts, whereas WeChat you would actively follow the ones that you really have much more of a relationship with. So that's one channel. KOLs are key opinion leaders. They are the influencers for China and there's loads of different tiers and types and uh, KOLs that are on different apps. So for different channels it's relevant for different audiences. So So many that you can choose from and in terms of quality they range as would be the mm-hmm. case anywhere. And in terms of working with them, they're very effective with the right objective in mind. So I think when it comes to working with them, we always say to to brands, basically, you you need to be very clear about what your objective is in terms of using this KOL, and then being able to measure your ROI based on the right KPIs according to your key objectives. So it's not just to say, take a top A list KOL just for the sake of doing it, and then you know, it, it is a an immense expense right, and right, investment. Right. So it really needs to translate to something. So you really need to think about what is the objective, identifying what the right KOL is, which platform it should be, what kind of collaboration it ought to be, and then being able to move from there into what would be uh, the actual execution and performance, and being able to always monitor and track and assess that performance, and. You don't need to just choose one KOL. You can really think about a KOL strategy that allows you to effectively reach your objectives and address your objectives. So that might mean working with a whole lot of different KOLs of different types and tiers and platform focuses. And then... Yes, I mean, ultimately that whole investment experience needs to be constantly evaluated and you continue to identify which ones are the best performers for you and you keep going from there.
0: How do the KOLs different from the Western influencers?
1: I would say some of the key things that are different is that actually influencers over there have become quite a big market. So there's actually quite a lot of different types of KOLs some that focus on just short form video, some that are, uh, so it can vary by format. Uh, As a result, varies by then the channel that they're on. But then there are also, for example, in the beauty space, very specific ones that are, you know, maybe chemists that are just focusing on retinols and peptides. And then, you know, another one that is just focused on very clean beauty clean and green beauty for example and specific elements that are within that so it can get very granular and that's where you know certain brands can tap into different ways and audiences as a result but you'll also find that it, it is so diverse i mean the top KOL for lipsticks is a male KOL.
0: Right, I read about that. Yeah, right.
1: and so, I mean, that's kind of where, it, and, and that's not so different from a lot of the influencers that you do find also here, but the fact that they are able to kind of amass these large amounts of followers and activate against it is actually a lot more, I'd say, efficient uh, if the right collaboration is put forward. So you do have KOLs like Mr. Bags, who also works with Todd's and a few many other brands that has been able to sell out bags within minutes and things like that. So those kind of uh, conversions are definitely possible and at a much greater scale right. and speed. Uh, whereas I feel that in terms of using influencers over here, it tends to be a little bit more of a softer branding exercise, whereas... It's not that uncommon to see it be much more towards the conversion end of marketing when it comes to the KOLs in China.
0: So how does a brand find the right KOL? Are there brokers or are there ones that obviously they could find, see which ones are the most popular, but how do you find, how does a brand find perhaps an up and coming KOL?
1: Yeah, I, that is definitely a great question because it's a, a constant flow. It's a whole market of its own. There are agencies there to help manage, and they also have their own managers sometimes on the KOL side, sort of like working with an actor. But, uh, you know, there are PR firms that do this, digital firms that do this, KOL firms that do this. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a bit of a relationship uh, situation. So, you know, Brands that uh, identify even on their own internally, also keeping an eye on that as well in terms of what's going on in the industry. But it does come down to relationship on the at the end of the day. It, not to say that they don't at the end of the day have a, you know a transactional fee to the whole situation. I mean they do still need to eat dinner and have lunch. This is a, this is their job, but. It can be a relationship that you see long term. So if, uh, you know, you work with a KOL that you have one collaboration that performs well, you continue to work with them a few more times, then you can potentially consider those KOLs to be longer term. So looking at some of these young, sorry, not younger, but um, newer uh, emerging type of KOLs, you can be looking at sources like entertainment, Uh, some of these popular reality shows with singing shows and rap shows that are uh, emerging and uh, very popular, but like they showcase a lot of emerging talent, they eventually sometimes become uh, a KOL of their own. So that's a a source as well. But I mean, that continues to evolve, like gaming has also become quite popular. So that's also an area, K-pop and all of that. But in terms of keeping an eye on all the KOLs, it's just making sure to track different industries and be able to keep an eye on what is trending in terms of topics and being able to assess whether or not the the profile is something that you would want as a brand to be tapping into and working with them and s- trialing, right. seeing how it goes, and then checking the performance and evolving that relationship from there.
0: Yeah, and you know, the, obviously the KOLs appeal to the young, younger Chinese consumers. And the younger Chinese consumers are driving the essentially driving the luxury market, and what's interesting to see. You know, in looking at the profile of the young affluent Chinese consumers, they have the money. Um, they was you know the millennials are owning their they own their own homes, they're getting funding from their parents. Um, they want to show off their success. It seems that's where the growth of this market in the luxury market in China is really going to drive, and, and Gen Z as well, moving forward. What What is unique about the, the younger Chinese consumer?
1: I mean, their appetite for content is massive. Uh, they are, the great thing I would say is that in China, you can be on the metro underground, very far underground, actually, and be able to access uh, the internet. So in terms of that infrastructure, again, going back to that, that's something that isn't necessarily translated in other markets where you can't do that still so you know being on their phones and watching videos just really consuming all that content uh, discovering things searching things the ability is facilitated with that infrastructure so in terms of what they're doing the the speed at which they're capturing all of that is just immense and that also means that for a brand it also has to be something that they keep in mind in terms of the volume and frequency of their content. Not to say that you need to be pushing out content just for the sake of doing it, but that it is at a higher frequency and greater volume.
0: So how important is brand storytelling, given all that volume? We're seeing that brand brand storytelling is is becoming very big, especially with the direct-to-consumer brands here in the States. How important is brand storytelling in China?
1: It is definitely important. And going back to these younger consumers, they're quite well-researched, you know, because they have all these tools and accessibility to information at the fingertips of, you know, uh, their their mobile phone. They're able to consume all that information. And I think it's important to do brand storytelling still because it's still your brand voice and what distinguishes you from the next And it's important to be able to communicate that to consumers in a way that resonates with them. So it's not necessarily taking your brand story from global and just translating it, obviously, into the local language, but re-adapting and highlighting the elements that make sense to speak to those consumers and delivering it in the right format. So it might not be that it's just this clickable about your brand page. It it, it might come out as a, a video, short video format that is told in a different way, or you know, an interactive kind of module that allows for a consumer to discover what your brand is really about. And it, it might come out in pieces. It might not be just this one landing page that sits there. And you know, s- these consumers are definitely interesting for brands, but it's definitely important not to dismiss the fact that this is a digital dominant, Market that means that a whole group of generations of people are using uh, digital uh, applications. So not to dismiss some of the, what they might call the silver generation and the older generations that are also very digitally savvy in comparison to the Western Mm -hmm. counterparts. And that, you know, the whole ecosystem of these digital uh, applications actually facilitate for all of these people to be able to participate. So it's important to look at, The bigger picture, I think, at the end of the day for China.
0: So Singles Day is coming up. And actually, when this this podcast airs, I think it'll already happen. Um, It's the largest e-commerce day in the world. I think last year, Alibaba had some record sales. I think it's storied at like $31 billion in 24 hours. If you could... Tell us a little bit about Singles Day and how do luxury brands get involved in Singles Day?
1: Sure. Singles Day is a huge event Uh, started many years ago for sort of people to kind of treat themselves. Um, Hence, all the ones in Singles Day, Mm -hmm. and it's a huge event commercially. It's very promotional and for. Brands, this is something that brands will start to prepare for at least four or five months in advance. So coming to it you know, sometime in September or August is already rather late. Um, it, it's important for brands to actually be considering this occasion far in advance because the collaborations, the opportunities, the different elements that Tmall is activating on – is quite widespread. So getting that conversation going and being able to talk to your Tmall partner and your category manager at T-Mall to be able to facilitate what's going to be happening for your brand does take a lot of advanced planning and thinking so that you're not sort of scrambling for it. What we do see now is that while the event happens on 11/11, that there is a lot of you know, pre-warm to it. So there's activation happening ahead of it, seeding up to it. I mean, yes, communication-wise, that's always been kind of the case where you kind of want to tease to the ultimate day and launch. But now you see brands that are doing live streaming ahead of time. You have pre-orders, pre-putting it into your basket so that it's ready to go the day it starts to change, turns the clock. Um, So a lot more opportunity to really kind of activate around that one day and then thereafter. So brands, in terms of the luxury space of being able to participate in it, just need to keep in mind that it is a promotional commercial day, that uh, the idea of participating in it does require investment on the brand side. And that will be, you know, facilitated with all the activations that Tmall also does. So the exposure and uh, the the sort of amplification that goes around it will also be supported. But a brand does need to invest for that. And it does need to, like with any occasion, I think you just need to think whether or not this is the occasion for you. It doesn't mean that you have to be participating into everything. It's a great opportunity, but, you know, it requires resources, right. and investments. So it's not just an easy feat to click on a button and then you're on the event day. So with all the different commercial activities that happens in China, and there are many, a lot of them on a regular basis, you want to look at the ones that make sense for you and what you can actually activate around, what is the kind of product that you might go for to be able to develop something that is special for this occasion uh, to really showcase your participation for it and the meaningfulness that you will have for this China market. But also know that it is that one time of the year, you know, it's not to sustain the ongoing revenue stream that you want to have throughout the year. So it's to keep in mind whether or not it makes sense for you.
0: And do luxury brands get involved in this as well?
1: Yeah, they do. But I'd say they don't get to it as far as other brands. I'd say beauty is probably, like the premium beauty sector is probably an easier category to get into that. It's hard to justify, I would say, uh, major uh, promotional discounts on, you know, very high-end li- luxury goods. But being able to do something around it that is maybe smaller scale, but being able to actually uh, participate in one way or another to, you know, be part of the market it makes a lot of sense. But Again, it's, it's a larger conversation than just saying, let's right. just do it.
0: Iris, right. I, I could speak all day with you because it's such a, uh, a wide topic and uh, a lot to talk about. Um, I always end the luxury item podcast with the luxury item question. So if you we were stranded on a desert island and you could have only one luxury item with you, can't be a form of transportation, obviously, and it can't be uh, anything with mobile service, obviously, Um, what would it be? Well, since I
1: have time to prepare for this deserted island experience, I would say that I would bring the most luxurious possible sunscreen, and I haven't found what that is, and I would prepare for it accordingly (laughs) if I had this (laughs) occasion happen. Um, but, yeah, that would be definitely the the key piece keeping key my piece. skin keeping my skin as you know fresh as possible, even <laughs> though I'm alone on this island <laughs>
0: <laughs> so if one final word to any luxury brands out there who want to get into break into the Chinese market, a few parting words to them to make them feel comfortable that everything's okay.
1: It's always going to be changing, so there isn't always going to be all the the key pieces coming together in the perfect storm for you to enter, and you just have to dive in and get started. You'll learn things along the way. It'll go up and it'll go down, but if you're invested in this market, it's not going to matter because it's going to still be there for you to operate in, give your presence, and take the opportunity that is actually there and presented in front of you. So taking that first step, you just got to go into it and you'll, you'll, you'll be fine. There are small things that you can do in an educated way and in a way that uh, allows you to uh, meander the market in a way that doesn't cost a, a devastating investment, Um, but you do need to invest like you would any other market that you would uh, enter into. So you just got to make the bold step and start.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much, Iris. This was a, a great guest and very informative. And thanks.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: You're welcome. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.